Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to another episode of New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Thomas Aiello, an Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Valdosta State University. Tom's research and teaching interests focus on 20th century African American cultural and intellectual history, and he's published widely on these topics. Uh, Perhaps most notably, his 2015 book from Louisiana State University, Jim Crow's Last Stand, Non-Unanimous Criminal Jury Verdicts in Louisiana. The book we're discussing today is The Grapevine of the Black South, the Scott Newspaper Syndicate in the Generation Before the Civil Rights Movement. It's out now as part of the University of Georgia Press series, Print Culture in the South. Tom's book offers the first critical history of this influential syndicate, from its roots in the 30s through to its end in the 50s. At its heyday, more than 240 papers were associated with the syndicate, making it one of the biggest organs of the black press during the period leading up to the classical civil rights era of the post-war period. In this interview, we discuss the challenges facing Tom in tracking down this vast network of papers, many of which have only survived in fragments, and dig into the syndicate's development and lasting impact. Hi Tom, how are you doing today? I'm great, it's, it's great to be here. Okay, it's good to talk to you. Before we kind of get into the, the body of the text, um, our readers kind of like to know a little bit about how you came to the project. So I was hoping you could say a little bit about where the origins of this project came from, um, the kind of the process by which you, you came to write this book. Absolutely. Um, you know, as uh, an historian of Black America, we, we hear a lot about the Black press uh, in the North and the main kind of vehicles of Black information. We don't hear a lot from the South. But years ago, when I was doing a project, I was actually doing a project on uh, Negro Leagues baseball, of all things. And I had to use a lot of Southern Black newspapers to to find evidences of games being played and and things like that. And I would notice these advertisements in Southern newspapers kind of making a case that you need to buy Southern black newspapers or else you're inauthentically black, that that the only real black newspapers are Southern black newspapers. Uh, uh, Black Americans who leave the South with the Great Migration are all traitors and they're they're getting white and they're they're not right. And it left me fascinated with this kind of notion that I had never really thought about before. And um, I made a note of it. And uh, later on, when I uh, had some project space open, I went back to this and that ended up kind of carrying me on a years long journey to to kind of understand the black press in the South. Um, and the kind of central focus of this book is the Scott Newspaper Syndicate or Southern Newspaper Syndicate. Um, as you say, it's just generally uh, understudied or overlooked in terms of histories of the black press. Can you give readers a kind of comparison with, for example, um, the Chicago Defender and subsidiary newspapers of the Defender? Uh, like how big was the the Scott Syndicate, you know, how many newspapers might have been involved? How how long did it run for? Absolutely. So so the biggest black newspapers uh, and black newspaper kind of uh, uh, syndicates um, were the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Baltimore Afro-American. We know a lot about them uh, because they were all saved. They were all in larger places with libraries interested in collecting them. Uh, Their subsidiary papers were all in uh, big cities as well. Um, The the most, uh, I think the Chicago Defender had in any one time was seven newspapers, all in big cities. And the great stories of these papers is that um, that they would send their editions, that they were all fire eaters for civil rights, and that they would send their editions down through Pullman car porters, down to the South to give uh, the Black South access to this kind of literature that they wouldn't otherwise have. 
the Atlanta Daily World um, is going to be the hub of the Scott, first the Southern Newspaper Syndicate and then the Scott Syndicate after it moved outside of the South. Um, it is going to be um, the first sustained Black Daily in the country. Um, it will be, it will develop in the early 1930s, uh, really in the heart of the Great Depression. And at its peak, at any one time, the syndicate created and built off of the Atlanta Daily World and owned by this one family, the Scott family in Atlanta, was running 50 and at most 60 papers at any one time. There were at least two, at least 241 newspapers associated with the syndicate. It was far larger and uh, in both number of papers and just geography of scope than any of these other syndicates. Um, but we, you're right, we don't know much about it because its papers were not in big cities. I and mean, there were some exceptions. They had a paper in Birmingham and one in Memphis um, and a couple others that, that kind of sustained for a while. Chattanooga had one. There were some papers that were in marginally sized cities. For the most part, these papers were in very small towns throughout the rural South, where they only, some of them only lasted for a couple of months. Um, and they were in places that either didn't have libraries or certainly didn't have <laughs> any libraries that were interested in collecting black newspapers. And so a lot of uh, this kind of cultural production and information production uh, gets lost. Um, and the book clearly, I clearly don't want to give the impression that focusing on the Chicago Defender or the Pittsburgh Courier is wrong. It certainly is not the case. I think uh, in just number of individuals touched, they probably do um, get their just due and they are important and they do provide a radical voice that is necessary and they really do send down additions into the South. But I think what gets lost in a lot of that narrative is that the papers, uh, the Chicago Defender papers that Southerners read are always secondary to the local black press that they read. And since those local papers didn't really have the kind of um, collection directive that some of the bigger papers did, I think that gets lost. And we assume wrongly that uh, black Southerners didn't have any other outlet for their news. Um, and they did. And it was a much larger outlet uh, of ephemera than any other Black outlet in the country. Um, in what ways would uh, the newspapers of the, of the Scott Syndicate differ from, for example, northern papers such as The Courier or, or The Defender? Um, are there differences there editorially or, or philosophically? There are differences editorially and philosophically. There are also differences in just how they developed, which I think affects that. So um, uh, the Chicago Defender uh, takes its money and goes and invests in other newspapers and creates other newspapers in other cities. The Scott Syndicate does that a little bit. They do that in Memphis and they do that in Birmingham. For the most part, that's not the way their business model works. What they do is they send the Atlanta Daily World, the largest of their papers around the South, and there are advertisements in it that say, do you want to create your own newspaper in your own town? All you have to do is send us some news from your town. Be your own reporter, be your own editor, go out and find the news, write some editorials, take the news. If you'll send it to us, what we will do for you is we will set all your news. We will um, set your editorial page. We will supplement that news with um, content that we have from the Atlanta Daily World or other sources like that. We will put our own advertisements in it. We will kind of fill it out. And for a fee, we will print that up for you and send it back to your town. And so it allows individuals who would never have any kind of original journalism experience to become their own parts of this particular network. Um, in many cases, um, 
the people who are doing these newspapers are town leaders within the black community, but in others, they are janitors at, at local schools. They are others who just have a desire to contribute to their communities by creating these newspapers and so go out and collect news. The syndicate in Atlanta is designed specifically uh, to be far more democratic than any of the other systems, to allow anybody with a bent for um, kind of creating these information networks for their community to do so. And because they do it that way, they get a lot more papers, but they also get a lot more editorial slash philosophical positions because everyone is really allowed to do what they want. And so the editorial pages of some of these papers are, I think, what we would call relatively conservative or mainstream, and they don't try to rock too many racial boats because they have a vested interest in sticking around in a region that is defined by overt white supremacy. But there are others who are far more willing to buck those racial trends and are willing to kind of stick their neck out in a way that you might not in a more established, if you had an established press office, for example, if you were having your own printing press, it might seem like a risky investment to start pushing the envelope in the South where uh, white revenge could come relatively easily, where people could come in and destroy all that money that you invested. But with this system, with this democratic way of doing things, there really isn't that much risk because there's no printing press to destroy. Everything is being printed out of Atlanta and being shipped back to you. The only thing that you can be held accountable for are the things that don't have somebody else's, a Scott newspaper syndicate uh, dateline or byline on it. And so a lot of these local papers are going to be surprisingly radical and call for real reform knowing that the stakes, as far as financially goes, are relatively low for them. And so you get, you get a, a, a real varied uh, sense of positions when it comes to how we choose to um, represent uh, the racial struggle in the South when it comes to these various papers. It doesn't seem to have any specific coding based on size of city. It doesn't seem to have any basic coding based on um, original employment of given editor. We see um, both radical and conservative papers in larger areas and radical and conservative papers among poorer or richer editors. Um, it really does seem to vary based on the individual. The one commonality that we can depict in all of these papers, and this goes as well for the Scots' main newspaper in Atlanta, is that radicalism of these editorials and of these editorial positions in general news coverage tends to rise when the stories they're discussing happen somewhere else. So they are far more willing to be radical when they are describing conditions outside of their own sphere of influence. So, in, for example, if you had a newspaper in um, South Georgia, where I am right now, uh, you wouldn't create radical editorials decrying a local lynching because that might bring some kind of retributive action from the would-be lynchers or just from the white power structure that existed here in a, in a place that was dominated and in a lot of ways still is dominated by white supremacy. But you wanted to talk about those issues. And so what editors would do is that they would rail against um, lynchings that happened across the border in North Florida or across the border in eastern Alabama and would take them to task and argue that those people were Visigoths and they were doing stuff terribly and they, they were all wrong and they would kind of decry lynching in those places and they would kind of deflect uh, their own local problems by focusing their radical messages 
on places that were nearby, but that were out of the scope of their kind of pseudo jurisdiction. That way they could get the message across without um, running into any specific danger from locals who might take offense at what they were saying. Uh, in the book, I call that a practical radicalism. It's a way of kind of um, kind of skirting that line with locals to keep yourself stay safe and to kind of maintain a general conservative reputation among those whites who might look askance at what you're doing, but at the same time, kind of actively uh, engage with people who might need to hear those messages. That idea of, of kind of a practical radicalism is, is an interesting one and, and one that's kind of central to, to the book. You also talk about um, the idea of the Scott Syndicate being a kinship network um, and you kind of trace this back to uh, this, this kind of radical tradition that stretches back to slavery. Um, could you just say a little bit about how you use that idea of a kinship network and how that is applied to the Scott Syndicate? Absolutely. Um, the black population in the South, from its onset, from the arrival of slaves, um, had to figure out improvised ways to get news from place to place. Um, and that typically happened by a modification of West African lineages and the information and familial networks that had developed on the West African coast and were modified to um, uh, help slaves who were brought over to the United to, to the colonies, and then later to the United States. And the way they did that was to create these kind of artificial linkages um, between one another, to create these news networks, these information chains that went from plantation to plantation, from geographic region to geographic region. We know, for example, that even before the first black newspaper, Freedom's Journal in the 1820s, we know that well before that, um, the black population maintained a series of news networks um, that kept them abreast of everything going on. The debate, for example, around independence and liberty and the removal of the colonies from England was well discussed in slave networks and the hypocrisy of that, of these white guys talking about liberty as a defining characteristic of what they wanted, even as they held so many in slavery, was discussed regularly by slaves through these networks. They knew all of what was going on in the current events. It was their original news network. When we finally do get organized black news in the 1820s and carrying forward, those networks don't go away. The vast majority of the black population was throughout slavery illiterate and never really experienced that kind of network. But as Stephen Hahn and others have shown us, those kinship networks didn't go away. They started to develop into um, the information networks in the Gilded Age that end up kind of generating our first efforts at civil rights, uh, that create our first uh, organizations designed to fight that, carrying through up through the Niagara Movement in 1905 and ultimately uh, uh, the Urban League uh, and even the NAACP uh, in its later form. And so we see these kinship networks survive, but in talking about kinship, I think, and its survival post-slavery, I think we focus a lot on um, those personal relationships that end up giving us the impetus to fight for rights. What we often lose in those discussions is the, the information part of those networks. And that really doesn't go away. What we see in the syndicate by allowing local plumbers to generate their own newspapers and using that kind of local initiative to create a, a news network and stocking all of that, that blank space with news that is being distributed by black sources throughout the country. What we're seeing is a reification of those networks. I mean, we are, we are seeing that network democratically, just like we see it during slavery. We see it improvised, just like we see it during slavery. 
and we see it uh, moving in directions that we otherwise wouldn't assume it to go because we are democratizing the news by allowing individuals at the source to create their own. And, and so again, as you're right, the argument here is that, that this is kind of developing um, uh, a literate version of those oral kinship sources, that grapevine of information that was developed in slavery and carried through in the South all the way through this syndicate, allowing that news to be democratized. Just a, a final question before we kind of get into the, the meat of the book. Um, you've, you've kind of described the, the extent of, of the Scott syndicate, you know, just how many papers were involved and, and the spread of it, uh, you know, all across the South, but also in some instances outside of the South. Um, but many of these newspapers were quite transient. Um, often they didn't last very long. Often they weren't very well preserved. Yeah. How difficult, um, how challenging was it to try and track these different publications and, and what kind of archives were you reliant on um, to do that? Right. Um, it was very difficult. I mean, there is, a, there is a reason why not a lot had been written about these papers in this era. Uh, they simply, when they do survive, they only survive in a couple of issues. And those issues are not... Um, uh, housed in any kind of uniform way. They're housed in those local municipalities. So the Atlanta Daily World, the, the, the kind of hub paper of the syndicate, does have an archive at Emory University. Um, it is an archive that mostly deals with that paper itself. But it, and it emphasizes in particular that paper's... Um, existence during the civil rights movement. And that has its own very interesting history. The Atlanta Daily World is known as a relatively conservative paper during the civil rights movement. It was, for example, opposed to the sit-in movement infamously uh, that happened in Atlanta um, and gets a bad rap for that. Its, its leader was a kind of rock-ribbed Republican and um, and it kind of is looked at as this conservative paper, largely because it's only known for its time during the civil rights movement. But by that point, the syndicate had already gone away. The syndicate goes away in 1955, even before the Montgomery bus boycott begins. And so um, that archive does deal in kind of a tangential way with the syndicate. There isn't as much information there about its pre-1950s time, but it does exist. And it allowed me to kind of create a roster from cash receipt books and from um, kind of other kind of ephemeral documentation that they were just kind of writing down general payments. I was able to kind of compile a list, just kind of combing those books for weeks on end of newspapers that they engaged with in one way or another. And you can tell from how those payments are being um, recorded, whether or not they are essentially part of this syndicate, whether they are paying for information and printing costs and things like that, where they are paying to be part of the syndicate. So that started with a big list of those papers. And then I, I would just go to those individual communities archives in those individual communities and try to find any vestige that those papers ever existed. Um, I, I worked up a, a, a massive spreadsheet to kind of see when these papers existed, how long they lasted. And then I literally, with the help of my university, I literally traveled all over the country to small archives in small places. I just drove around one summer uh, all over the country, from as far south as Miami uh, to as far west as West Texas, as far north as uh, New York and New Jersey, um, and just drove around the country uh, at all these little archives and state historical societies and things like that, trying to find one or two issues of any of these papers. And then after those, that collection happened, then of necessity, even though I know this is not ideal, I would use 
the few editions that we had of those papers to stand in as kind of representatives for what those papers looked like. And certainly it is very possible that those papers uh, changed um, uh, their editorial policy, for example, over however long that paper ran for. But I kind of took it at face value that if I had three issues of a paper that survived, that this was the best representation I could get of a given paper and use that as a stand-in. And so, Unlike the Defender, for example, whose papers are in larger cities, they're collected, you can just find something with the, the word Defender on it and say, okay, this is a paper that ran for the Chicago Defender. So if, if I get the Tri-States Defender in uh, Memphis, I know that I'm looking at a Defender paper, all the issues are there. You can't do that in Pensacola, Florida. You can only find some one random paper that somebody had in the back room of a library somewhere and kind of use that as best you can to estimate what that paper looked like in the aggregate. And so the archival process was uh, the most fun, but certainly the most difficult as well, uh, just kind of going around and trying to find evidence that these papers exist existed after I developed a master list of papers that, that I did have payment evidence that they existed. Okay, great. Um, so let's kind of talk a bit about the, the context of, of the founding of uh, the Atlanta Daily World. Um, or or the Atlanta World, and then subsequently Daily Paper, and then that's kind of the, the basis for this, this flowering syndicate. Um, so what's the, the context of Atlanta in the late 1920s uh, when this newspaper is founded, and, and what's the story of, of the two brothers who are kind of at the, the center of its formation? Right. So uh, Atlanta is a central character in this story. Uh, in many ways, it was a hub for um, the Black South already. Um, certainly, uh, it vied with Nashville as being the hub, the intellectual hub of the Black South. We have in Atlanta, the Atlanta University Center. It was a series, uh, a cluster of Black universities uh, in the city. So not only did you have a a large centralized black population in Atlanta, but you had one of the most educated black populations in the South with Atlanta University, Clark University, Morehouse College, Spelman, Morris Brown. There are all these historically black universities in Atlanta. And Atlanta, because of that, uh, Auburn Avenue, the main uh, black business district in Atlanta is going to feel uh, more than most um, black southern areas, which were mostly rural, they are going to feel, in some regard, the roar of the roaring 1920s. They are going to see some moderate success. The Scott family wasn't originally from Atlanta. They had moved around. The patriarch of that family was a preacher. Uh, the two Scott brothers who kind of run this were actually born in Mississippi. But they come to Atlanta, uh, they attend Morehouse, one of the colleges, and uh, W.A. Scott, the founder of the paper, started off as a journeyman. I mean, he was a salesman. Um, he had moved around various places. He had spent some time in Jacksonville, Florida, and he had kind of gone around the area. But he always had a bent for publishing. When he was in Jacksonville, he had created a, a local business directory and had gotten himself in trouble trying to compete with the other local business directory and kind of got himself run out of town. And he ends up coming back to Atlanta, where there already was a an established uh, Black newspaper, uh, the Atlanta Independent. And he decided to to challenge it, to create an alternative to this, this kind of already established newspaper. And so he starts the Atlanta world. It, in its initial uh, incarnation in 1928, when it is founded, it looks just like most black newspapers. Uh, it is a weekly, as most black newspapers are. Um, it is originally only four pages. It's not very big. But he has these kind of large dreams. The reason why uh, black newspapers are weeklies is because they are essentially supplements to mainstream news that is 
largely run by white people. Um, and so you can still, if you are a black customer of a black newspaper, you can still get daily news. You can still get the, the main doings of Congress and war and everything else from a daily newspaper. But the black newspaper served as a weekly supplement to talk about what was going on um, in the world of black America. Scott had a different idea. He thought that there was enough going on in black America, particularly in the 1920s. And he's doing, he's starting this, of course, pre-stock market crash, pre-depression. There's enough news going on in black America that a daily newspaper could very much work. And so even as he starts his weekly, he has these larger dreams of something bigger. We have evidence of him talking about a daily as early as 1928. We have him at talking about a syndicate as early as 1928. And so he, he creates his newspaper with those bigger dreams in mind. By 1931, um, his newspaper is a tri-weekly. He's putting it out three times a week. He's already created a newspaper in Birmingham. And in 1932, uh, he makes his newspaper into a daily adds another paper in Memphis, and really starts to grow this idea that he can um, grow a news network throughout the South in a way that it really hadn't been before. And if it had been before, it had been in the days of kinship networks and the grapevine. They kind of create this kind of freestanding news network that would govern what people see uh, throughout the region. Um, so this is happening at a kind of pretty critical moment in, in kind of the economic history of, of the United States. Um, other really? black newspapers, you know, the Defender really, really struggles during the, during the 30s and, and other black newspapers struggle. How is Scott and, and how, is, how is the Atlanta Daily World and, and subsequently the syndicate able to thrive during this period? How is it able to book that trend? It's able to book that trend in two very specific ways. First is that model that we already talked about in which he's in, they're encouraging locals to send in news and to pay them money to print these newspapers. So all of these new newspapers or at least most of them, I should say. I mean, the Memphis and Birmingham papers very much rely on the Scots. All of these other newspapers that are coming in to the syndicate are value added for the syndicate. Whereas the defender spends the venture capital to go into the Memphis market, for example, and create the Tri-States Defender, even though that doesn't come till after the 30s, they're putting all the risk into it. They are building that newspaper. They are uh, purchasing a printing press. They are doing those kinds of things. They are investing in the community. What the Scots are doing is essentially having these individual communities invest in them. So um, if you are a janitor in Pensacola, Florida, for example, you are going out on your own initiative, collecting the news of the town. You are writing some editorials and you are sending a check to the Scots who will do that work for the fee that you're paying them and send that newspaper back to you. All of the individual newspapers they're creating as they're creating this network is, is not being funded by them in particular. So each of these new newspapers is value added to them. They're not having to invest. And as the Great Depression goes on, people turn as we all know, during economic crises, people tend to turn more towards religion. They also tend to turn more towards a daily following of the news. They care more about what's going on in the world because they feel they have more at stake. And so as demand for news goes up during the Depression, um, that corresponds poorly for the defender because they're losing a lot of their generic income. They're losing advertisers. They aren't, when they lose advertisers, they aren't able to spread the paper out as much as possible. But for the Scots, it's actually going the other way. People want those, that news, and so they create their own newspapers and use the Scots to help them do that. So everything is profit. The other way they're able to make money during the Depression um, is is that they are 
vigorously um, uh, willing to play the system to benefit themselves. So, for example, they are anti-union and fight against unionism whenever they can. So they are, they are operating at a relatively low cost because they're not paying people very much. Second, they're willing to, I guess, I mean, they're willing to screw other people out of their, their information. So, for example, the vast majority of black news in the country is is run through um, a press outlet known as the Associated Negro Press. It is the black version of the Associated Press, which puts out um, syndicated stories that go out to anybody who has a subscription to the ANP, and then those stories can supplement news in black newspapers throughout um, the country. And for a subscription the Chicago, to the ANP, uh, the Chicago Defender, for example, pays $5 in, for a subscription to the Associated Negro Press. And that is kind of the way that goes. And actually, technically speaking, the Associated Negro Press is in Chicago and is run by an ally of the Singstack family. So um, the Chicago Defender might not be the best example there. But what the Defend, uh, excuse me, what the, what the Daily World does is they pay $5 for their subscription. And then they argue to the Associated Negro Press that all of these additional papers that they are printing and adding news to are just subsidiary versions of the Atlanta Daily World. So they start taking Associated Negro Press news and putting it in all of these newspapers, not paying anything to the syndicate company who is actually providing all this news. And they're making this legal case that they only have to pay $5. They are sued several times by the Associated Negro Press. They fight off those lawsuits. And so another reason why they're able to thrive in this period is that they are really screwing over other black news businesses and news concerns in the country to be able to do this. Um, They are... Uh, really kind of reinterpreting the laws to make to benefit themselves over and against anybody else. But by doing this and by having this syndicate work from a, a bottom-up level rather than a top-down level, they are actually able to see their best years during the heart of the worst economic catastrophe in the country's history. So W.A. A. Scott clearly a kind of... Uh, man of some character grit distinction uh, but he he doesn't unfortunately last that long into the 1930s so what happens uh, to wa scott and how does that affect the kind of trajectory of the syndicate right um grit will sometimes get you in trouble um and grit is often a nice way of saying pseudo corrupt and certainly the the associated negro press thought him such and certainly the, um, the, the directory company in Jacksonville thought him such. And certainly the Atlanta Independent, his, his rival paper that he ended up forcing out of business, thought him such. And ultimately, um, he is murdered. Um, William Scott, we don't exactly know what happened. His murderer was um never jailed uh but he was essentially assassinated in the um driveway of his home after concluding uh trying to conclude a business deal to buy the headquarters of the owner of the rival newspaper he had run afoul of many bus- leading business people in Atlanta. And so there were many candidates for who might have killed him. Uh, It actually makes for a very interesting list of potential suspects, but no one um, is actually ever convicted for his murder. But his murder, a salacious story in early 1930s Atlanta, um, in black and white coverage, 
is going to end up leading his brother, a guy named uh, Cornelius uh, Scott, C.A. Scott, as he was known, to take over the paper and, of course, the resulting syndicate. And he will carry it all the way through uh, the 1960s. He will stay in power through uh, the foreseeable future and carry it into what we think of as the modern age of black journalism. Um, and the paper still around today is still in the hands of the Scott family. It is still a, uh, a Scott family paper today. It is still run and operated by the Scots today. So uh, that family legacy never really goes away, even though its founder doesn't get a chance to see his vision kind of uh, lived out on the grand stage that he was hoping uh, because he is assassinated before he ever gets that chance. So despite this, this murder, um, Cornelius takes over and, and the, the syndicate continues to expand. And as you, as you get into kind of the heart of the book, you, you, you talk about its expansion beyond the South, um, particularly after World War II. And uh, what we see is this quite interesting tension. Um, and it's something that you talk about in the introduction and then you return to it in, in the central chapters. And it's this idea that uh, a paper or, or, or more broadly a syndicate that has kind of sold itself as, as uniquely and fundamentally Southern um, ends up expanding beyond the South and ends up really competing with these established Northern newspapers, Northern syndicates. Um, so how does the, the, the Scott syndicate balance that kind of um, uh, the the kind of value of being seen as, as a Southern product versus trying to have this kind of national scope and influence? It's a good question. And the easy answer is they don't balance it very well. Um, the Their move outside of the South was, again, part of this larger Scott vision of kind of taking over the news of Black America. And so what we end up seeing is all those advertisements that talk about the inauthenticity of people who have left the South and gone somewhere else. Those advertisements go away. And we see the Scott Syndicate really follow the, the, the trails of the Great Migration. We can see them move into all of the same hubs where the bulk of migrants from Georgia and Alabama, those that central deep South area end up going. So, I mean, technically speaking, uh, we end up getting 16 syndicate newspapers in Michigan. We only end up getting 14 in Georgia. So there are actually, at the end of it, more newspapers, syndicate newspapers in Michigan than there are in its home state. Um, and they are following their readers, essentially. So what started off as you have to read the, these papers because they are Southern becomes of necessity as more and more people leave during the Great, uh, during the Great Depression and certainly start to leave uh, at the onset of World War II as we get the last major millions wave of the Great Migration. The, the, the Scots start to realize that the South is leaving the South, that the black population that they speak to is going away. And so those people who leave still have a desire for the kinds of news that they got when they were back home. And so they do the same things that you know, the, the, the local janitor in Pensacola was doing. They create newspapers and build those papers off of the syndicate in Atlanta because they know that the vast majority of potential customers in, let's say, Phoenix, Arizona, way far away from the South, are people who are actually from the South, who miss that kind of news, who want to know not only what's going on in their new community, but what's going on in their old community. And so the Scots find it uh, 
basically a business necessity to accept those offers and to create this news network that extends throughout the country because the great migration has pushed the South in so many ways to be the black South, to be a national phenomenon. I mean, right before W.A. Scott creates the Atlanta world, we're still dealing with a black population that is more than 80% Southern in the United States, even after the first major wave of the Great Migration during World War I. But that fundamentally changes in the 30s and 40s as millions upon millions of people leave. And so the only way to respond to that is to grow the syndicate even farther. It also has the ancillary benefit of creating new outlets to make money and to create new papers so that you can keep this idea of a syndicate afloat. And so they end up following this, this, this kind of um, out-migration along with all of their readers. And the best way I can say that they handle that is that they just stop advertising for Southern authenticity. Um, they, again, they changed the name of the syndicate. It was the Southern Newspaper Syndicate. They changed it to the Scott Newspaper Syndicate so that they kind of lose that specific association with Southernness. And even though the Atlanta Daily World's um, editorials, for example, deal mostly, if not almost entirely, with Southern issues because they are in Atlanta and they are the hub of the Black South, they are perfectly willing in the syndicate to accept editorial positions from all over, whether their papers are in New Jersey, New York, Michigan, or Arizona. So they, they spread out, they lose the name, and they try to adapt to a changing demographic where the bulk of their readership just starts to leave. They have no other choice. Um, so we, we see kind of some of those tensions, as, as you've just outlined, happening outside of the South. Uh, we also see what you describe as the limits of syndication uh, and in terms of these tensions between um, the kind of central message or voice of the Atlanta Daily World and the overarching uh, control of, of Cornelius Scott and then some of these syndicated regional papers. And, and one, one paper in particular that you talk about is the Jackson Advocate in Mississippi uh, and Percy Green. Um, so can you say a bit more about uh, what happens between Percy Green and, and, uh, and, the, and the Scott Syndicate and what that might tell us about the limits of syndication for, for the black press? Absolutely. You know, that's, the Percy Green case is a good one because sometimes it's hard to understand the contours of these relationships, especially when you only have cash receipt books and a few other things that are housed at Emory to kind of explain kind of the exact nature of these relationships. But the, the Percy Green case is important to us because it actually goes to court. So we can see uh, the testimony and the actual explanation of both the, the Scots and the Jackson Advocate on how they view syndication. And so it, it describes in detail how the process works in a way that um, just the raw figures can't really explain. And that, you know, that case is important as well because, because of the limits of syndication, as you mentioned. Um, Percy Green is um, the editor of this paper in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And he, in the process of writing his editorials, he ends up slandering a local principal, the principal of a local black high school, um, the local black high school, especially in the South, where there aren't a lot of black high schools and where education that had so long been denied was so central to the community. High school principals in the, in, in the black community were, were venerated people. But he accuses a local high school principal of uh, taking liberties with female students. Um, and that that accusation ends up getting him in court uh, because the principal ends up suing him. He ends up losing his job and 
uh, it becomes a big scandal, and he says his reputation is ruined, and he denies ever doing this, and there was no source to evidence. This was all just hearsay. And the principal is right. It was all just hearsay. And Percy Green was kind of infamous for uh, using some of his editorial page for local gossip rather than, <laughs> rather than for um, kind of clear-sighted uh, economic or political positions, for example. And he was right about that. But they go to court, and in the, in the course of that lawsuit, the Scots are forced to testify. And um, they are the ones who end up becoming the defendants in the suit because the paper, since it is a Scott syndicate paper, is responsible uh, in the eyes of the court for the content of what they are printing. After all, they are the printers. They are the one who set that editorial and printed it. More than likely, they either glanced over it and just said, okay, fine, and printed it, or they didn't look at it at all and just said, whatever, this is the editorial, we'll print it. But when they printed it, they became responsible. So they have to defend what they're doing. In the process of that defense, A, it tells us all kinds of great information about exactly how their process worked, how it differed from, say, what's going on at the Afro-American in Baltimore, or what's going on with the Defender in Chicago. But B, it also ends up demonstrating that they have a real liability that they didn't know about. That because they are the printer here, because they are technically the syndicators of Green's newspaper, they are going to be held liable for that slander in federal court, which means they are going to be the ones who are fined. They um, uh, are the ones who are convicted. And it's going to sour their relationship with Green. I mean, they will cut off ties with Green. Green will end up having to use another printer locally to keep going with the paper. They cut ties with them. But more importantly, it makes them rethink the, the value of this process in general. C.A. Scott was notoriously cheap, again, refusing to allow his employees to join unions, that kind of thing. He was, a, he was an Eisenhower guy. I mean, he was a, a, a notoriously conservative guy. And it's going to make him rethink this process. They are fined $1,000 and, and forced to pay for uh, Green's mistakes and it's going to lead them to question whether or not in the modern age, this is happening during World War II, we're into the 40s by this point, whether or not um, having a far-reaching syndicate is worth the kind of financial risk that can come from various lawsuits of locals when they are trusting people without any kind of journalistic qualifications to do the kinds of responsible journalism that is required to keep you out of lawsuits. And ultimately, down the road, um, as of the early 1950s, that will convince them that the syndicate is more trouble than it's worth, and they will, uh, and the syndicate will, will will cease publication. So, in thinking about um, the kind of decline and, and dissolution of the syndicate, what factors would you say are kind of specifically? southern or, or regional factors in, in, in the kind of decline of the syndicate? Um, and what factors may be um, more broadly connected to the decline of the black press post-World War II that, you know, scholars such as Hank Klibanoff and Clint Wilson have talked about, you know, the kind of um, move of, of black journalists to, to white mainstream papers or, or the, the turn of, of, of mainstream papers towards the civil rights issue, um, all of these things kind of lead to a decline in black press circulation. It absolutely does. In, in the South, we don't really have yet, as of the 1950s, when the Scott syndicate ends, we don't have a move yet of, uh, in any kind of real numbers of black journalists to white papers, like we do in the North in the post-World War II era. But... Um, we do have black journalists doing mainstream journalism. So, for example, it's the Atlanta Daily World who gets the first black reporter uh, in the White House press pool and things like that. 
So we are getting uh, black journalists doing mainstream news. More important, I think, is is the civil rights kind of uh, argument that you just mentioned there. Um, white newspapers, whether or not they are reluctant to do so or not, report on civil rights all the time. They have no choice. I mean, the story of the South in the post-World War II era is the story of civil rights. It is the news. And so what Black newspapers are essentially doing as of the post-World War II era is providing a uniquely um, uh, Black take on the news of the day. But no longer do Black readers have to go to the Black press specifically for Black news because the vast majority of influential Black news in the post-war era has to do with intersections with white people and white spaces and uh, white politics and white economies, then the actual news itself can be found in the papers that they had been reading all along anyway, those mainstream newspapers. The only reason to go to the black press is largely for um, kind of um, a more sympathetic take on those issues. And for people like the Scots, that take just isn't really good enough, I guess. Um, for example, in an effort to uh, kind of tamp down a lot of that activism, the Scots are going to end up arguing against the, the, the Freedom Rides. They're going to argue against the sit-ins. That's not going to put them on the right side of history, and it's not going to put them on the right side of the community that would be most likely to buy their newspaper. And so what we see in places like Memphis, Birmingham, and Atlanta, the three main hubs of the syndicate, we see rival papers come up and take over. Um, they don't drive out the Scots, but they do destroy a lot of their business because they come in and they see that there was a market here for a more radical voice. If the black press is largely going to become not an information supplement, but a viewpoint supplement, then you need to have a viewpoint that is decidedly different than the mainstream white newspaper. And the Scots, it takes them a while to figure that out. And eventually they do. I mean, there's a reason why the Atlanta Daily World is still around today, even though it's no longer a daily. They do figure that out, but it takes them long enough to where competitors come and help erode a lot of the goodwill and business that they had built up in those various communities. And as their profit margin declines, it's going to be more and more difficult to sustain the kind of network that they had been able to sustain before when they had a much better reputation for being willingness to events, at least a version of radicalism that they kind of lose the reputation for along the way. And so um, when they're not providing the proper viewpoint that would be an uh, antidote to mainstream coverage, they lose a lot of their followers and ultimately it's going to help them collapse. Um, the Defender and other papers like that, the Northern Papers, don't necessarily have a viewpoint problem. Uh, they are producing activist civil rights stances and are going to remain viable largely because of that. But again, they are going to end up suffering uh, from their journalists actually being hired by white newspapers. They're going to see northern newspapers start to cover civil rights um, in far greater amounts and with far greater sympathy than Southern newspapers, and so they're going to see a decline there as well. And so the trajectory of uh, Black newspapers is going to decline uh, in reverse numbers with the integration of white news and white newspapers. And it's the same way for, for every kind of Black institution uh, we see you know, the integration of baseball, for example, is celebrated as a great thing. What we often forget is that it kills the, one of the most viable black businesses of all times, the Negro Leagues. 
Um, we see the integration of Southern universities, but we also see the economic devastation that is handed to HBCUs because of that. Black newspapers in the South are no different. Um, they are going to um, be creatures of a very specific need that is in less demand uh, after the civil rights movement is able to make the gains that it is able to make. A uh, reminder to readers that Tom Aiello's The Great Vine of the Black South, the Scott newspaper syndicate in the generation before the civil rights movement, uh, is out now with the University of Georgia Press. Uh, you can get it at Amazon. You can get it from the press website. You can get it from wherever good books are sold. Tom, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.